right. Very good. Um, that was beautiful. Gosh, that was awesome. We, um, I'm, I, I always appreciate when um, Alex and the elders invite me to come preach. I love being here and see old friends, and it's just good to be here. Um, love worshiping here. It's, it's a great experience for my wife, Sherry, and I. And so um, uh, we're going to jump right in to, um, actually, it's going to seem kind of random, because as a, a guest preacher shows up, um, it's almost like I just sort of flipped the Bible and stopped somewhere, and we're just going to preach on that. Um, this really has no context, but let me, uh, let me say a quick prayer, and um, I'll introduce the text, and we'll get started. Father, um, you are good, and Lord, um, we know all too well the crimson stain of our sin, and, um, and Father, it's, uh, it's deep, um, and it's, it invades all of our life, and yet um, Jesus knew that, and he knew our lives, and He still died. He still went to the cross for us. So, Father, let us see Jesus this morning. Continue to see Him in Your Word and through the preached Word. And, uh, Father, we need the hope that the cross gives us. We need to cling to the cross. Father, let us never be further away from the cross. Um, No further than the cross. Father, no higher than Your feet. And so, Lord, um, let us find hope there this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right. We, uh, if, you got, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 23. And um, like I said already, it's sort of one of the challenges is, is that uh, it seems kind of random. Well, it's 2 Samuel 23. And, uh, and I get that. And so let me help us out a little bit this morning. Uh, there's two things to keep in mind as I read the text and then well, as we preach on it. Uh, this is a recollection uh, of King David. He's at the end of his life. He's lived a long he's a life. He's an old man, and uh, he is thinking back. He's recalling some of the, uh, the great things that uh, have happened in his past. And uh, he's thinking back uh, here in this text at a time when it was the earliest part of him being king. Uh, he had uh, the king before him. He's Israel, probably Israel's most famous king uh, in the Old Testament. But right before him was King Saul. And King Saul um, died at the hands, at his own hands, actually. But the Philistines had invaded Israel and, um, and taken over. And King Saul is now dead. David is king. And he hasn't been king for too long. And the Philistines want to kill him, too. So he's on the run. And... Uh, He's trying to put together an army. Philistines want to kill him, and he's having, having a hard time putting together an army. And that's his situation. That's one thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know is the Philistines had set up their headquarters in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's beloved hometown. And their garrison, their headquarters, was in Bethlehem. Two real important things to know about the text we're about to read. Keep them in mind. I'll see if I can unpack it um, Make some sense of it this morning. Let's read from God's written word in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 13 through 17. And three of the thirty 
chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the camp of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the written word of the Lord. I'm going to ask you a question, and I already know the answer to it. uh, I'm going to ask this basic question, and your answer is going to be, yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course, like all the time. All right, now here's the question. Uh, Have you ever felt overwhelmed? (laughs) Yes, of course, all the time. Uh, You know, two minutes ago at home. I mean, being overwhelmed is part of all of our story. We feel that way, some of us more often than others. I mean, if you're a parent, you feel overwhelmed. Um, You know, in situations where whatever your job is, if you don't have a job, uh, maybe you're laid off. I mean, I can relate to that. Um, you feel overwhelmed. There's just everything. If you can fog up a mirror, <laughs> you feel overwhelmed. It's part of the broken creation we live in. There's just, it seems like there's just so much going on. There's so much to do, so little time. Uh, being overwhelmed is really part of um, any job that you would do, whether it's, I mean, any job that you would do. I um, there is something in this text this morning that made me think about a time when there was a guy in my office. I, it was, this was in 1987. I was working in uh, Montgomery um, in an architect's office. And we had a guy in our office. His name was Dennis. And uh, we had been working on a project month after month after month. It was this long project. And we were getting towards the tail end of it. And it was one of those times when you start, had to start working a lot of overtime because we had this big project due. And it was a deal where the boss comes in and he gives that sort of cliched talk about, well, you better go home and kiss your wives goodbye for two weeks and it's going to be hard. And, and it was. It stunk. It was really difficult. But Dennis was this really big guy. He was the job captain. And he was one of those guys, he was so big that he just sweat all the time. It didn't matter. It could be 32 degrees out. He was just, he would sweat and he'd wipe his brow. He was just a nervous guy, always overwhelmed. And so as we got towards the project end, he was really overwhelmed. And um, so we decided to play a joke on him. Uh, And here's the deal. Here's what you need to know. Back in 1987, if you worked in an architect's office and you did drawings, you had to, um, one of the things we had to do is we had to pull together all the engineer drawings, the the electrical engineer, the mechanical engineer, the plumbing engineer. They would send their drawings. And we we drew on paper that was kind of, it was sort of, uh, it was clear paper, essentially. It was called uh, mylar. And you would, you would take all their drawings and you would stick them on top of each other because you had to take their drawings. And anyways, this, I'm, I'm going to not bore you with that. But then what you had to do was we had this big machine in our office and you, it, would put, it was called a vacuum frame. And you'd put all the sheets of paper and then it would suck all the air out. It would just kind of squeeze it together. And then you spun it over like this 
Because underneath were these big, long, four-foot light bulbs, kind of like you would have in these lights right here. And there were special bulbs, and they would shoot a light that would make an image on another piece of paper, and then you had that sheet of paper. Okay? I'm going a long way for this, so hang with me. Um, we were at the last day before the drawings were due, and all the engineer drawings were coming in. And about mid-afternoon, because we're going to have to print all night long, mid-afternoon we realized two of the bulbs on this big old machine was, were out. And nowhere in Montgomery did they have any of those bulbs. They had some in Birmingham. So we sent the office gopher, like the high school intern guy that worked there, we gave him the money and we said, now go get those bulbs and come back. Now here's the joke. When he came back, we stopped him out in his car and we said, look, give us the bulbs and here's what we're going to do. We gave him an empty box that looked kind of like those bulbs. We paid him to walk into Dennis's office. So all excited, I got the last box of bulbs and we wanted him to trip and fall on top of them and seem like they broke. Okay? We, <laughs> we paid him enough money to do it and he went in. We all got positioned where we could see Dennis. Dennis was in his office behind the desk, sweating. <laughs> and here comes the go for the intern. He runs in, Dennis, Dennis, I got the... And he trips, falls, and smashes the box. And then here comes Dennis. Dennis's face, man, all the blood rushed down to his face. He turned white, as white as can be. And then he turned his head, kind of like a puppy, like, what just happened? And then the blood went back into his face. He stood up, reached across the desk, and he said... I can't tell you what he said. Because <laughs> this is church. All right, but anyways, he screamed and yelled, and we laughed. And, and he finally calmed down. You know, he, uh, I think we might have you know, given him a heart attack, but um, you couldn't tell because he was always sweating, and he looked like he was having a heart attack. All right, so this is 19. Remember the old MasterCard commercial, right? You know, a, gas, a tank of gas, $22. Now, this was 1987, so bear with me. Tank of gas, $22. Box of light bulbs, $75. One practical joke, and the look on Dennis's face, priceless. There we go. All right. I had, as I read the text, and these loyal, these three loyal men risked their lives to go get the water that David wanted. And they bring it back to him, and they hand it to David. And David takes that water and dumps it out. I was trying to imagine the look on their faces. And I always picture, Dave, I always picture Dennis. <laughs> I, don't, I imagine they started cussing at David after that, but I just imagine their face like, what just happened? I can't, I mean, how, why would you dump the water out, David? This is a kind of a strange incident. Uh, it would seem that what David should do is take the water and in gratitude drink it. It would instill loyalty in these men that he would say, men, thank you for your devotion to me. And I'm so gr grateful that when we win this battle against the Philistines, you guys will be the, you know, the, the celebrities of the new kingdom. And and, and, and I'll drink this water because I want you to be loyal to me because I see your devotion to me. And if I drink this water, all the other men will be devoted to me as well. But he doesn't do that. It just doesn't seem right. It seems strange. Um, so what we're going to do is let's look closely at this text. And then 
I think we can apply this to our lives because let me tell you, if you've ever felt overwhelmed, like all the time, right? And life is just hard because we live in a broken creation. It's hard. There are things that happen that we don't want to happen. There are people that we love that do things that just we can't believe that they've done. It's a hard world, and it can feel so overwhelming. We can learn from this, something from this text. It has fed my soul, and so let me show you where I found food. Let's be reminded of the situation. David is recalling this time from his past. He's thinking back. He's thinking about, uh, about all these mighty men who were devoted to his cause. And he sees, and he sees them and in his mind. He remembers them by name. In fact, after this text, he starts to name all of them that he can recall. In this little short little story, uh, again, we just remember the Philistines, one of the major enemies of Israel, they had already defeated King Saul before. Uh, King Saul was so overwhelmed about this. and the end of everything, he kills himself before the Philistines could. Uh, and the Philistines are still overrunning all of Israel. Their camp is set up in David's beloved hometown. I mean, his world has been rocked, for sure. Uh, and he is most certainly feeling overwhelmed. He's trying to put together an army. There's a little quick little mention in verse 13 that it's harvest season. That's the worst time to recruit anybody, you know, 3,000 years ago to be in an army. They didn't have Kroger. They didn't have Publix. You had to grow your own food. So they're trying to grow their own food, harvest their own food. It's hard to put together an army at that time. So he's just overwhelmed. He's facing a vast and powerful army that just obliterated the previous king, and they want David's head. And so you and I imagine we can feel overwhelmed, I, don't, I hope I never have to do that. Um, but certainly, in this room, I can look at all the faces. I can tell you that we share many things in common. But certainly one of them is that the feeling of being overwhelmed by life. Your neighbors feel it. The person in the apartment next to you feel it. The people you work with feel it. The person that we all feel overwhelmed at times. Um, I, listen, when the phone rings now, I hate it. The last time I was excited the phone rang was when I was in high school, you know? Because now it's, it's, it's people, if it's for me, they want something from me, I've done something, you know? It's, it's not always good news when the phone rings. I can, life just makes you feel like that. You don't even want the phone to ring anymore. There's just so much to do, so little time. It's never the right timing. It's always harvest time when you're trying to put together something, right? It's always hard. It's just overwhelming. And at times like that, we can do what David's doing here. He's thinking back in a better time. You ever done that? You're going through something hard, and you go, man, it was easier then. It may have only been a small part of your life. There may be a time in your life, and it was just a short time that it was a good time. And you think, I long for that. I long when it was easier. And we can do that when we're feeling overwhelmed. And that's what David's doing here. He's thinking back at a great time. He's nostalgic. I can imagine he's thinking back at Bethlehem. You know, in the afternoons, in, the, in those great days during the spring, maybe he's coming off the, you know, he's got a, has a flock he's been tending, and he comes off the field, and he's with some of his friends, and they go to that one well by the gate in Bethlehem, and they draw the water. And maybe he's catching the eye of some girl, and who knows what's going on in his mind, and he's thinking about that, and he longs for it, because he feels overwhelmed right now. And so nostalgia, right? And it can creep up in our lives, and we do that. We can think back because nostalgia shows up when everything else around us is changing so fast. 
Or it can show up to the other end of the spectrum too when it's just not changing. <laughs> My life just keeps doing this over and over. And, it just, and, and when we can wax nostalgic for another time. And, and we do that so often. And so we can long for the past. But what's going on here is <clears throat> there's even something more than that that David's doing. When David's mind wanders and he starts thinking about how good that water would taste, the one from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, he was asking underneath that question what you and I ask when we're feeling overwhelmed too. And it's this question. Will things ever get better? Will it ever get better? And we start to wonder about that. Is it ever going to get better? David wants to know, God, will you make this better? Will God remember me, remember uh, and make what's wrong right? And that's us too. That's how I was able to relate to this text because I do that. God, is it ever going to get better? How long, O oh Lord, is this going to happen? And we want to know, when is this going to end? When is it going to get better? Will I ever get a handle on this problem? And when will I get better? And here's, here's what else I want to know. And, and it's what um, we all ask when things are difficult. It's what David is asking here uh, in his longing. He's saying, God, are you there? Are you there in this? Um, do you care? Do you care about what I'm going through? And Lord, can you fix what's overwhelming me? Now, David is thinking out loud, oh, I wish I could go get this water. David's mighty men who are devoted to him hear his wish and it becomes their command. When we read the Old Testament, so often the details are left out. We don't always have a, a, a lot of detail, especially in Old Testament narratives. And so we don't have the details of how difficult it was for these three men to break in through the Philistine-occupied uh, territory, to go into Bethlehem, to get the water and bring it back. We don't hear about the first battle. We don't hear about how, did they have to kill somebody to get it? Uh, did they, did any one of them get injured as a result? Um, how hard was it? Man, and we don't even hear, I mean, 3,000 years ago, go get a, if we get water now, we get a bottle, dump it, put the lid on and carry it. I, I don't know, 3,000 years ago, I don't know what they put them in, but it probably wasn't a plastic bottle. I'm thinking, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, what did they do? They I probably got three of them. Like, you take one, I'll take one, because we don't know who's going to trip, drop one, or anything. But it was a mess to get there, I would imagine. Difficult at best. And we don't read the description of the look on their faces when David pours it out. I see De Dennis's face. That's what I see. So, um, but you know they must have been exhausted. You know, they went and risked their lives. And they were excited that David could drink this, but he pours it out. <laughs> but here's the thing that I realized as I read through this, that if David had taken the water and if he had drank it, if he had just drank every bit of it, he would have given these men and the rest of his men false hope. He would have given a false hope. He would have given them a false hope that victory against the Philistines is about your devotion. David would have been telling these men, hey, it's your devotion to me that is going to win the battle. David realizes this when he sees them bring the water. See, David takes the water that they risked their lives to get. He takes it, and he's astonished at something. He didn't accept, he didn't accept the water as his due. He poured it out to God, receiving it as a gift from God, 
Because God was telling David something, and he is so, his heart was excited and glad, and so he pours it out. You see, David asked God this question. God, will you set things right? Will things ever get better? God, are you there? Do you care? And David got his answer. Because if God can allow three men to penetrate the mighty Philistine army, surely God will deliver them into David's hand and give full victory. So the blood of the men who retrieved the water became precious to David. And he saw their blood as blood of men who went at the risk of their lives. He didn't hope in their devotion to him. What he was amazed by was God's devotion to them and to David. It was God's devotion to the cause, to them, God's steadfast love to them. That's what astonished him. That's what made it. It was God's devotion to them, not their devotion to him. David is awakened from his sort of nostalgic longing, like you and I get. We want to go back to a better time. And he's, he's awakened from it, his longing, and he's awakened from his questioning of God's devotion to him. Because when we wonder, God, are you in this? Do you care that I'm going through this? He was questioning God as, as underneath all of this. But then he sees an example of God's faithfulness, and he wakes up. And he praises God. And that's what you and I need to do when we're overwhelmed. We need to wake up, see his devotion, and praise him for it. Now, it was either C.S. Lewis that said this. I didn't go try to figure out who said it or not. I'm fairly certain. But he said this, or somebody, but it, he said this about the times of when we feel overwhelmed. Or we feel discontent from the situation that we're in. We just sort of long for something else. And he said this, if you're not finding yourself unsatisfied in life, you are either very young or very superficial. And he said this, if you are very successful in your goals, and we know people like that, right? We just, they're out there doing their thing, and it just seems like they're golden. And, um, but he says this about them. There is a low growl of emptiness in their lives. Just a just kind of feeling there's something that's not right. It's a low growl. Uh, now, for the rest of us, if you're unsuccessful, you know, sort of maybe overwhelmed by life, there is a deafening roar of emptiness in our lives. You see, that's sort of the two ends of the spectrum. There's the very successful, and they, they still don't feel right. And then there's the rest of us, right, that just doesn't, it's so loud, we can't handle it sometimes, that how overwhelmed we are, how empty we feel. Now, once you discover this idea, uh, then there's only really four possibilities. Three of them are wrong, one of them is right. Because we can start to blame things. First thing that you can blame is you blame the things in your life. You know, uh, for David, it was no water. Boy, if I had the water, maybe I'd feel better. For us, it's so often, you know, more money, maybe. Um, finally, a spouse or one that loves me or, um, you know, a family that loves me that we hold together. Maybe if I just had those things then. So we blame our situations for how overwhelmed we feel. The second thing could be that you blame yourself. You know, if you've ever beaten yourself up, you know, I'm not smart enough. Boy, if I could just look better, uh, I think I'd feel better. If I could just fix this. And number three, we blame the universe, Lewis says. The idea would be we blame God. He must not love me. Uh, he doesn't care. He's not there. But here's the fourth thing, and this is right. This is what I believe Scripture teaches. 
if we're feeling sort of overwhelmed, uh, this sort of emptiness, either a low growl or a deafening roar, what we need to blame is our isolation from God. Uh, we need to blame our separation from God because we are, what separates us from God in those moments is unbelief. We don't believe something about God, and we need to. See, feelings of being overwhelmed cause us to long for a, maybe a past day that will never reappear, and we tend to look for other things or people to rescue us, right? We start to do that. We're just this endless idol factory, uh, Calvin says. But what this passage teaches us is this, is we need to find our satisfaction only in God. Because positions, status, reputation, money, people, things, they all evaporate like water. Water that's poured out on a sun-baked ground. It all goes away. They don't last. So what this passage teaches us is that we are to find our satisfaction in God alone. We're to be devoted to God like David's men were devoted to him. We're to risk everything for God, to put it all out there, to, to go to enemy territory at the risk of our lives, fully devoted to God, just like David's men were devoted to him. That's what this passage teaches. But there is a problem here. It's a huge problem. I have it. You have it. We all have it in this room. This is what this passage said. Be devoted to God, just like David's mighty men were devoted to him. Risk your life for God. Give everything away, all of it. Do it for God. But there's a problem. You can't do it. Man, you have tried. I've tried. I can't do it. I can't live a life like that. But there is one who did. Do you know his name? Jesus. Jesus lived that life of devotion that shows up in the men, the mighty men of David. Jesus, our king, our warrior king, he went into occupied territory. He took upon flesh. He took upon flesh. He entered into enemy territory. This world. Is this not enemy territory? Do you feel overwhelmed? It's enemy territory. It's this world. And he enters into this world. And don't miss this. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. He went into Bethlehem. He went into Bethlehem to bring us the water of life. He invaded the enemy territory, lived the life that you and I couldn't live. He lived a life of pure devotion to his father. All-out devotion. Giving up everything to live for the father. Not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And then he died the death that you and I deserve because, you know, our lives of devotion that we're called to live, we made a mess of it. Our sin is like, it's crimson, and it spreads into over everything. He lived a life that we couldn't. And on the cross, when Jesus saw the life that you and I lived, every detail of it, everything about your life, he saw it, and he still stayed on the cross. He didn't come down and say, this one wasn't worth it, you weren't worth it, you weren't worth it. He stayed. He stayed for the mess of the life that we live. And what's really amazing, truly, is that the Father, the poured out drink offering that was Jesus, and the life he lived was pleasing to the Father. 
And we know it was pleasing because Jesus was raised from the dead. Raised from the dead to show forth the Father's good pleasure at the satisfaction at his devotion. The Father was satisfied with Jesus' devotion to him. And that is the Father's joy. Jesus broke through the enemy lines to bring us the water of life, not just at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. That's amazing. Just as David knew he had the loyalty of his men because they risked their lives, we know we have the devotion and loyalty of Jesus to us because it cost him his life. That is the gospel. That is grace. Now, if your life circumstance is such that you feel overwhelmed and maybe you long for days gone by, maybe the future is very uncertain for you, you have to cling to one thing, not your devotion to God, because it's a mess. There's some things, but it's not enough. We're to cling to one thing. We're to hope in one thing in these tough circumstances, God's devotion to you. The blood of Christ tells us that the feeling in your heart that, the, that, that, things, that this is the way things will always be, when we look into the face of Jesus, we see that's not true. Because all of us who are in Christ will one day be with him forever. And whatever God is calling you to endure right now, it's worth it. It's worth it. Because he's there. You know you have his devotion because you can look into the face of Jesus on the cross. Now, before I close, there's one last thing. If you look at the rest of chapter 23 in 2 Samuel, uh, there's a list of David's men who were devoted to him. They were called the, you know, the, the 30, the mighty 30, but there's 37 of them. I think it probably was just a nickname after a while, the 30, and as men died, or they just sort of added men. It was a total of 37 ultimately. If you look at the last name on that list, the last name on that list is put there for a reason. It's there for emphasis. It's last for emphasis. Just like, you know, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? So it's listed last. It's there for a reason. It's a name that if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with David and his story, that name will just jump out at you. It's there last for a reason. It says something about David. Do you know what that name is? It's Uriah. David lists him as one of his mighty men, as the last one. And do you know who, you remember who Uriah is? Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Bathsheba is the woman that David committed adultery with and then had Uriah killed. And see, the story of David is not about a man of great obedience. It's not a man. He's not, David is not the hero of this story. Jesus is the hero of this story. You are not the hero of your story. Jesus is the hero of your story. David's place in the story of redemption, of God's story of redemption, is based only on God's grace, only upon God drawing him to himself, not the life that David lived, because it's, he's a mess. Man, if you read his life, he's a horrible father, by the way. And even the rest of 2 Samuel, he keeps sinning. God said, don't take a census. David takes a census. He's a mess. But here's the truth that we know. There's a term in the Old Testament for God's devotion to his people. It's used primarily of God to his people. It's a word that could be used otherwise, but in Scripture, it's primarily used uh, exclusively of God's devotion towards us. It's a word pronounced chased. And so when we read, I'm going to give you two passages and I'm going to close. 
This is from Psalm 51. And Psalm 51 is the psalm David wrote after committing adultery with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite, her husband. This is what David writes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your chased, your steadfast love. It's God's devotion to us that matters. It's God's devotion to you that matters. Listen to this. I have loved you with an everlasting love, says Jeremiah in, in chapter 31. I have drawn you with chased. I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's what draws us to God. Even Paul says it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. It is God's devotion to us. That's why we... That's why we're Christians. That's it's the grace of God. It's the, it's the gospel of Jesus. And because if I only left you with be devoted like David's men were devoted, you would never be. But if we say, if I say, see devotion, look at pure devotion, I'm here to tell you there will be change in your life. There will be absolute change. There will be devotion that will astonish you. Yes, be devoted to Jesus. But look at pure devotion. Look at the face of Jesus. We're to never be um, further away than the cross and no higher than the feet of Jesus. That's where we're to stay. To see in the face of Jesus, pure devotion. It's like David looking at his mighty men coming in astonishment at what they've done. But it even goes beyond that. It's this astonishment at what Jesus has done And then by faith, you can do mighty acts like pouring out water when you're thirsty. Because where David was, there was plenty of water. You don't set up camp where there's not water. But he wanted that water, and he pours it out. That's the kind of devotion that will show up in our lives. It will astonish the world. It will astonish the world. And then your life will be a sweet, poured-out drink offering to the Lord. Let me leave you with the words of Jesus. He says, if anyone is thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, um, we give to you our lives because we see Jesus purely devoted. We want to live lives of devotion to you that will astonish us and astonish the world. So let us see in the face of Jesus pure devotion, that chased, that loving kindness that is so rich and so deep and so wonderful. It is like a drink offering that you give to us. You invaded the enemy territory and you brought us water of life so that we could live lives of obedience and lives of pure devotion um, through the power of your spirit that astonishes us and astonishes the world, Father. Keep us there. Keep us seeing your devotion to us. In Jesus' name, amen.